Welcome back to Supreme Myths, and this is truly a special episode for two reasons. First, it is the 100th episode of this podcast, which I started during COVID when I was bored to tears, but I have kept on. And my guest today, um, which is sit, which is sit fitting for the 100th podcast, is Professor Pamela Car- Carlin, um, the Kenneth and Harl Montgomery Professor of Public Interest Law and co-director of Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Stanford Law School. Uh, she is a graduate of Yale, her bachelor's, her master's, and her JD all come from Yale. Uh, she is an election law expert, a civil rights expert, a constitutional law expert. She clerked for Justice Blackman. She is a member of ALI. She wrote the Harvard Law Review Forward in 2011. And to put it succinctly, she is simply one of the most important constitutional law professors and litigators in this country. Pam, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. So let's begin here. Uh, you clerked for Justice Blackman. It was a while ago. We're the same age, by the way. Um what was that like? Did you enjoy it? And how hard did you work? Because I've heard he had people work pretty hard. Yeah. So we worked literally every minute that the Supreme Court's um, computer system was up. So it was up from 8 a.m. to midnight on weekdays and from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. on weekends. And I think with maybe 20 hour exception over the course of the entire year, we were there that entire time. Um, it was a great it was a great clerkship. He was a wonderful person to clerk for. Um, it was it was the last year of the Burger Court, so the court was deciding 150 something cases yeah. that year on the merits, as opposed to now, and I think they're down in the high 50s. Yeah. Um, and he was he was just a great boss, and I had great co clerks, and it it was a great term in terms of just the sheer amount of interesting cases, everything from a summary judgment trilogy that you teach when you're in um, when you're in um, Civil, when you teach civil procedure to the high watermark, I think, of abortion rights, which was the Thornburg against ACOG case. It was also, of course, the year of Bowers against Hardwick. So it was a it was a it was a really interesting year. And he was a wonderful man to spend the year with. For the non-lawyers listening, Bowers versus Hardwick was the case where the Supreme Court upheld Georgia's ban. It was actually a ban on all sodomy, but the court interpreted it as same sex sodomy. And um, I was clerking in the Northern District of Georgia when Bowers was there. And I had a good friend who was clerking for the judge, district court judge, who had the case, who was a pretty liberal guy. But he dismissed it with one sentence, I'm bound by a prior summary affirmance by the Supreme Court. And she came into my office in absolute tears. She was so upset her judge, she loved her judge, and he was a good judge. He's passed. But she was so upset about him not not ruling the right way in Bowers and the rest is history. Anyway, all right. Um, did you have time to, did you have occasions to visit with other justices while you were clerking? Yeah, so there was a kind of tradition of having lunch with each of the other justices. And I don't think we had lunch with all of them, but I think we had lunch with six or seven of them. Um, and so that was an opportunity to just kind of sit and talk with them. And then obviously you were kind of in and out of their chambers talking to their law clerks about various things over the course of the year as well. What year was this, Pam? This was uh, OT 1985, so it started in the fall of 1985 and went to the summer of 1986. Okay. If it was one year earlier, you would have had Allen versus Wright, which I think is one of the worst cases in American history, but that's a different story. Okay, last question. Oh, there, about- are, so many, there are so many competitors for worst I know, case but in American history. I think Allen is the only case, for the lawyers in the room, where the Supreme, where the Supreme Court actually said, this person doesn't have, these people don't have standing because other people in an identical case went to trial and proved the merits of the same case. And therefore, these people don't have stand. It's unbelievable. Anyway, um, last question about this. Um, you, you, you've litigated in the Supreme Court. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, are you in favor of cameras in the court? So for the Supreme Court, yes, um, I am for a couple of reasons. One is because it's really hard to get into the room. Right. Um, even if you wanted to be there. And for another, because I think that the justices and the the lawyers who are arguing are unlikely to change their behavior dramatically to play for the camera. And the audience is under tight wraps, so there aren't likely to be people leaping up and the like. Although I was there once when somebody began to scream and got dragged out of the room. Um, Justice Blackman, incidentally, said that one of his funniest days in the court was when Larry Flint had to be dragged out of the room during the Larry Flint case. Right. And by the way, Larry um, Flint, for those not not everybody knows Larry Flint, was the publisher of yeah, Hustler, well, Mag- Hustler Magazine, the most the yeah. most disgusting magazine. Yes. And he actually insisted on sending um, 
subscriptions to all of the justices. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Um, I, I was asked by Talking Points Memo to talk, because I've been in favor, of, I've been writing about cameras in the court for 15 years. Um, and I was asked, how do I felt about Trump's trial being televised? Which, if it does happen in, in, in Fulton County Superior Court, I'm not sure we'll ever see this trial. But if we do, it will be televised. Are you in favor of that? Yes and no. Um, yes, in the sense that I think it would be useful uh, for everybody to be able to see what's going on. Uh, but no, in the sense that I think you're going to have to have an anonymous jury. And I don't think you want to have the jurors' faces broadcast around the country, given what we've already seen of, you know. Right. Supporters of Donald Trump going out there. I mean, I testified, as you know, at his first uh, before his first impeachment trial, and I had to have police protection afterwards for oh my. a little a little while. That's a that, yeah. uh, and because I would be I would be worried of Donald Trump playing to the cameras. I mean, that's what I was sort of getting at when I said that the Supreme Court is a little bit different because you don't have witnesses there. Um, you know, you could have that set up. So all you're looking at literally is the justices and the lawyer who's arguing and you don't see the rest of the room. And I don't know how they would do that um, for a trial with an actual defendant there, especially a defendant who is very hard to control. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, 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 I Maybe the faces could be, you know, blacked out on TV or something. I don't know. It's, it's a real close call between transparency and potential for violence, I think. And I don't know. Yeah. I mean, one question is whether whether what you should do is something like what the Supreme Court did for a long time with its oral argument uh, tapes, which is you tape the thing and then you show the thing on a delay so that if there's some kind of problem, right. um, you can bleep it out, if you will. I just hope it comes to that because my gut tells me there's never going to be a trial in Fulton County, Georgia. All right. Um you, you, you work, you're a director of the Stanford Constitutional Law Clinic. Uh, it sounds fascinating. Well, it's, not, it's actually not a constitutional law clinic. It's a Supreme Court I'm litigation sorry, that's what clinic. I meant. I'm about, sorry. I was going to say about two-thirds of our cases probably are statutory. Right. I, I, that's what I meant. Did you start yeah. the clinic? Yeah, uh, with Tom Goldstein, who, you know, sure. you know, used to be the publisher of SCOTUS blog. Yeah. Um, I had met him when he was a law student, and we had stayed in touch uh, and he sort of raised the possibility with me and, uh, I raised it with my Dean who said, go ahead. Wow. That's great. So how many students participate? So in a, in a given year, we'll usually have 21 students. Um, Stanford's clinics run full time. We're on a quarter system and we have two quarters a year where we take new students and we usually take nine or 12, uh, students at a time and they do nothing but the clinic for that quarter. Uh, and then we usually have three or four advanced students who've done the clinic already were there to kind of help out with stuff as well. So it's about 20, 21 students a year, most years. And how do you decide, excuse me, which cases to work on? So uh, our, we have basically two commitments for the cases. One is that it will be a good pedagogical experience for the students. So we've sometimes turned down cases, including cases where the court has granted certiorari or where we know the court's going to, because we think that the lawyer who has the case either won't give the students enough ownership over the drafting or because the person's impossible to work with. Um, so there's the pedagogical value. And then we look for cases where we can add value because uh, it's a, the kind of case that most other Supreme Court practitioners might not take uh, or where we've developed a kind of expertise in that area. How many of those cases actually go to oral argument? I mean, how many cases do you follow? Do you follow amicus briefs? Is that what you do? We've well, we actually do everything. So we do cert stage work. Uh, we do merits stage work. We represent parties and we represent amici. Um, most of the cases we're representing a party, not an right. amicus, but we right. try to have one or two amicus projects every year, just because getting the students to see the kind of sausage making of an amicus brief is also a really useful thing for them. But for example, this year, I think we are counsel uh, in four merits cases that are going to be argued wow. uh, this fall. Last year, it was um, two merits cases. Most years, it's two to four. That's, that's impressive. I think you're the right person to ask this following question that I was asked last week and didn't really know. I had an intuition about it, but didn't have a compelling answer. I was asked, 
So it turns out there's some kind of big tax case I'm not following in front of the Supreme Court this year, some kind of case like that. And it turns out one of Justice Thomas's billionaire benefactors um, uh, is filing an amicus brief in the case. And I was asked the question about recusal and amicus briefs. And my, my, my intuition was, no, I don't think judges ever have to recuse because of amicus briefs because that would cause all kinds of problems. But then I said, but to be honest, in his case and maybe some others, I'm not sure how that plays out. I know this is an issue. Have you thought about I mean, is it is it an issue at all? So I, I'm not sure with the Supreme Court. I mean, there is a federal recusal statute and you have to recuse in cases where your objectivity might yes. reasonably be questioned. Um, I don't think there's a special rule for amicus briefs versus other kinds of briefs. It's interesting. I, I, um, I hadn't thought about it. And I, I think if you can file an amicus brief, and therefore lead to a judge's recusal that might be a problem over time, but I'm not sure. It was a hard call. Did the Bostock case come out of the clinic? No, uh, it, there was a companion case. There were two cases that were consolidated. So yes. the Bostock case was litigated uh, very well by a firm in Georgia. Uh, and I represented a man named Donald Zarda. Right. And Donald Zarda filed his case in New York. And the New York uh the district court dismissed the case, but the uh, Second Circuit reinstated the lawsuit. So the Second Circuit held, as the Supreme Court ultimately did, that Title VII covered sexual orientation. And because the Eleventh Circuit case and the Second Circuit case were decided around the same time, uh, both uh, Mr. Bostock in the Bostock case and the company, Altitude Express, in Don Zarda's case, filed cert petitions. The Supreme Court granted the cert petitions realigned the parties so that the employees were what we would say is were on top that is filed the opening brief and then the reply brief um and so our cases were consolidated and we had a discussion in which we moved for divided argument from the supreme court but they didn't grant it and um mr bostock's lawyers agreed that i should do the argument for both don zarda and gerald bostock well that was a very smart and obvious decision for them to make if i can say so um so just for the non-lawyers listening, Bostock was the case that extended um, the federal employment discrimination statute to um, gays, lesbians, and trans folks. It was incredibly controversial. The whole country was talking about it. Um, you show up for oral argument, and the second, the first question you received was from Justice Ginsburg. The second question you received right out of the gate was by Justice Roberts, who asked you, I'm going to paraphrase, but it's close to a direct quote, do you agree with Judge Posner that we should be updating federal statutes? That's a paraphrase. I just want to mention the opinion that Justice Roberts was referring to was a concurring opinion in a Seventh Circuit case that was not before the court at all. And, it, and wasn't, you know, so to, to be at, they, he didn't ask you about the lower court opinions or the court of appeals opinions. He asked you about Posner's concurring opinion in that Seventh Circuit case. Two questions. Did it surprise you? And how did you answer it? So it didn't surprise, the, the substance of the question did not surprise me. That he name-checked Judge Posner on it was a little bit surprising. Um, and I knew what the answer had to be to that question, which is the Supreme Court doesn't update statutes. The Supreme Court, uh, especially this Supreme Court, says that what it's doing is interpreting the text of the statute. And so the answer had to be, no, I'm not asking you to update the statute. I'm simply asking you to apply the meaning of the word sex as it would have been in dictionaries in 1964. And I spent a couple of hours actually going through dictionaries from the period 1950 to 1970, looking at how they defined the word sex. And they all defined it sort of along these lines, the condition of being male or female. Right. So my job was to say, if you just take that definition of sex, the one that Congress used in 1964, and you apply it to these facts, uh, you will get the result that discriminating against somebody because of their gender. I, well, I didn't argue the gender identity case. They combined that case right. with the, the uh, LGBT, the LGB case when they wrote the opinion. But what I had to say was, you know, for lesbian, gay or bisexual people, um, the word sex means you're treating them differently because of the their sex combined with the sex of the person to whom they're attracted. And that's in 1964 syllogistically what sex meant. So 
So we discussed this once before. We all know that in 1964, the Supreme Court was not going to decide this case in favor of LGB people. So what I I find kind of interesting about all that, um, and you should know it's a tradition on my podcast to mention Posner at least once every pod, but in this case it was easy because it was was going to come up naturally. Um, The opinion he actually wrote said in very limited circumstances, we were allowed to update statutes. And those limited circumstances are ambiguous terms, a statute passed long ago, and, um, uh, you know, a real serious kind of disconnect between society now and society back then. And, and Title VII falls into all three of those categories. America in 2020, whatever year it was, was much different than America in 1964, or 1970, whatever. Um, so what I find fascinating is, and if you don't want to answer this, you don't have to. Now that you won and you're a conquering hero, didn't the Supreme Court in reality, in fact, update the statute? <laughs> well, yes, but no more than they've updated Title VII in a host of other circumstances. So, for example, the Supreme Court held that sex stereotyping is a form of sex discrimination. In 1964, the idea that you could have uh, that that uh, the plaintiff in that case, um, a case called Price Waterhouse uh, against Hopkins, Ms. Hopkins was not given a promotion because she didn't act in a feminine enough manner. In 1964, the Supreme Court would not necessarily have decided that case that way, and I don't think Congress was thinking about that. The court had a same-sex sexual harassment case where actually the opinion was written by Justice Scalia, who, as you know, is about as hostile as any member of the court has been to the rights of uh, LGBT people. And he said, look, you know, it's not our, it's our job to read the, the words of the statute and apply them. But of course, that wasn't what Congress was thinking of in 1964. Um, so here's my question. <laughs> um, you know, this, the, whole, the whole world is listening to the case, really. It was one of the most, probably one of the most listened to cases of the last five years. You get asked this question. The answer you just gave me is no more than several other cases the court has um, when courts interpreted Title VII, including one by Justice Scalia of all people. Did you have to decide in, in a split second? Are you going to go that answer the question that way? You could have said Justice Roberts. Well, Justice Roberts, the Supreme Court has done this two, three, four times before in major cases, including Justice Scalia doing it. So I think it's perfectly appropriate. Or what you said, which was no, we're not updating the statute. Did that thought cross your mind? Not for not for a second, because I knew that the court will not say yeah. that it updates statutes, even when it does that. So um, what you have to do is you have to recognize w- what they want to be able to say. And what they want to be able to say is we're just applying the text of the statute. They do not want to say we're updating the statute. Right. And so, you know, it's the kiss of death to say, well, you've updated the statute a whole bunch of times before. So why don't you do it again? That was a very strategic move. And I think you would have lost Gorsuch had you answered it differently. I, I really do. Because might Gors- have lost the chief justice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting moment. Um, so I, I, I have a big question for you coming out of this. Okay. Um, you are a preeminent litigator, but you're also a scholar. So wearing your scholarly hat, not your litigation hat, which are different hats, as you just, as you just said. Yeah. Um, when we're dealing with constitutional law, or statutory interpretation, either one. And we have words that aren't clear. And we have words that were written long ago. This defined 50 years or or longer, as long ago. As a scholar, to me, it is unbelievably clear and has been since I read Erwin Shemarinsky's The Vanishing Constitution in 1989, before I was a law professor in 1990, that the court talks the talk of meaning. What do the words mean? What do the cases say? but they decide cases based on consequences. They just do. That's been the case throughout American history. That's my take on all of this. So the entire argument in Bostock was about meaning. Wouldn't we be living in a better world if that entire argument had been, is it a better or worse thing for gays, lesbians, and trans folks to be protected? Not, And maybe in statutory interpretation, it's not as important, but in constitutional law, shouldn't we be talking consequences, not meaning in a sane world? Well, part of the part of the difficulty there is if you're talking meaning rather than if you're talking consequences rather than meaning, 
you better hope that the justices of the Supreme Court share a lot more of your view of the consequences because then there's no constraint on justice, you know, Justice Alito saying, I think that it is destroying the fabric of American society to have uh, deviations from traditional sexual morality. Therefore, it's okay to put gay folks in prison for 20 years because that'll stop that'll stop a lot of people from uh, acting on uh, same-sex attraction. So I'm not sure that it's better necessarily to have judges just talking about the consequences. Um, it raises the question whether you have a written constitution at all if they're pure consequentialists. Well, Lawrence, Lawrence Tribe wrote, um, what, the Invisible Constitution? Akhil Amar wrote the Unwritten Constitution. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't I don't litigate anymore. I, I litigated for the Department of Justice for a long time, but for four years. But but I, I don't litigate anymore. But it seems to me what decides these cases are, in fact, consequences, facts, on-the-ground considerations, and they hide it with talk of meaning. So I think we're living in that world anyway, aren't we? Why don't we just bring it to the surface? Well, it, one of the questions is the extent to which things beyond just consequences constrain the justices. So if you're a pure consequentialist, then stare decisis only matters to the extent that there's, or precedent at all only matters to the extent that you think the precedent leads to the right consequences, but, which allows not just the Supreme Court, but, you know, is your theory that the Supreme Court should be consequentialist, but everybody else should be bound? Mm -hmm. Or is your theory that all judges should be consequentialists the whole way down? Since you asked, um, my answer is in, a, in, in, in open spaces in the appellate courts, I think we should know the basis for the judge's decisions. And when Justice Thomas writes you know, 40 incredibly stupid pages about the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, we know that's not why he's deciding affirmative action the way he decides it. My problem is this, and I say this a lot on this, on this podcast because I am a progressive liberal Democrat. Justices Ginsburg and Marshall, American heroes without any doubt, one the most important litigator for gender rights in our history, although you're, you're approaching that, but, but she was, um, and Justice Marshall by far the most important litigator for, for civil rights in this country, argued Brown, et cetera. And they vote 99.9% .9 of the time liberal progressive in cases that raise liberal progressive stakes. Alito, Thomas vote, vote conservative 99.9% .9 of the time. That's not because of meaning. Meaning has nothing to do with that. So why shouldn't we talk consequences? But, what, but, but Eric, why do you say that meaning has nothing to do with it as opposed to that's what they actually think the words mean? Because I don't know what, I don't know what that sentence means in the context of the following examples. Can, what do we do with congressional regulation of the Internet given the First Amendment? What do we do with President Obama? This never got to litigation. But what do we do with President Obama assassinating an American citizen having lunch in Yemen, um, you know, with no due process at all, which may have been the right thing or the wrong thing. I don't know. But it was still assassinating an American citizen, not on the battlefield. What do we do with issues where the meaning, either where the original meaning can't possibly help and the present meaning is, is, is too imprecise to help? I mean, that happens all the time. Well, I so, I mean, I recognize there are some hard cases, but there are also are a fair number of cases that are not hard cases where they're not just asking what are the consequences. There are, you know, a huge number of cases where precedent is binding because people have organized their lives around the precedent. And you might say that's consequentialist, but I think it's also using precedent. I mean, if you're thinking about the way that you know, Philip Bobbitt talks about the various modalities of interpretation. Um, there are cases where the text is really clear and it's really important to go with the text, even if the consequences of that text are maybe not what you would like them to be. I mean, it's absolutely clear that there's equal suffrage in the Senate. Um, I don't like that um, and that you can't amend that under the Constitution. I don't like that either. But that is what it is. So my answer to that is, is, and people ask me this all the time, I am a hardcore, people say Theron, but whatever, Theron legal realist. When it comes to the Supreme Court and open spaces in appellate courts, 
where there's clearly no Supreme Court case finding. My experience of 40 years with lower court judges, at least prior to the Trump era, was most of them took prior law seriously, and most of them followed precedent. Posner wrote pieces criticizing Heller and then struck down an Illinois gun law because he knows how to follow orders. That's what he, I have a direct quote from him. I know how to follow orders. Like I, even, even the most independent lower court judge in history said, I know how to follow orders. As to the Supreme Court, I once wrote a piece for Penn that said in every litigated area of constitutional law, no exceptions, first, second, fourth, fifth, sixth, eighth, tenth, eleventh, and fourteenth amendments, the court has changed its mind dramatically over the years. Because I don't believe, as an institution, the court takes precedent seriously. If I did, I might have a different view on it. But I don't think they do. And and one proof of that is in the last three years, the law of abortion, affirmative action, and guns, and religion, for the biggest issues we have, have changed incredibly dramatically in three years. So so I think when this... As, as, I think for the Supreme Court, it is consequences, consequences, and more. You know, policy, values, experiences, call it whatever you well, want. Values, values yes. Okay. Consequences is a different thing than values, right? Which is the Supreme Court might well recognize that the result of its gun stuff is more people are going to die, right? But it thinks that there is this value in the Constitution. Now, you and I both think that they're making up that value yes. <laughs> and that their history is bad history. Um, but I don't think that what they're doing there is about consequences exactly in the way that, for example, a pure utilitarian would be doing consequences. I think it's about they think there's a value more important than the human lives that are going to be lost. I think what I would say to that, and then we move on, I think what I would say to that is when Scalia was asked an oral argument, I think in McDonald's, don't you understand more people will die because of your ruling? And he answered, I don't care. I don't care. It, it says what it says. That's the problem. So Victoria Nurse at Georgetown, who I think is a wonderful law professor, she has done a lot of great writing on how even Scalia just manipulated text horrifically throughout his entire career. His dissent in Morrison versus Olson, which may or may not be right for policy reasons, is just wrong on the text. Very, like, you know, he's just wrong about it. Um, when you say, so I think... I, I guess I guess I, I guess I think consequences are a subset of values, and if you're going to say to me it's values that drive Supreme Court decisions, I am not going to argue with you. So let's just see if we can reach common ground. Do values drive most Supreme Court decisions? They drive an awful lot of them. Okay, fair an enough. awful lot of them. Okay, so again, I, you know there are there are a fair number of them, especially especially you know in the mixed kind of constitutional statutory area where it's where it's values. Right. Yeah. And one last thing about text. As far as I know, we don't litigate the Senate has to have two senators, the president has to be 35, the whole electoral college. We're going to talk about that in a minute in the context of your article. But um, as, as far as I know, the only constitutional law case in my lifetime to reach the Supreme Court where the text was clear was the 11th Amendment. And for the non-lawyers in the audience, I'm paraphrasing it, it says that states can't be sued by citizens of another state. And the Supreme Court ruled that another meant the same, based on an 1870 decision that should have been overruled. So I don't think text ever really cabins the Supreme Court's discretion or the discretion of appellate judges in the open spaces where the court has not acted, because the only clear provision we have, they've read it in exactly the opposite way. Is that fair? Yeah, I think the Eleventh Amendment is the ultimate and anti-textual. Yeah, but you know, again, this is this question of: Do you read the text by itself, or do you read it in the in the context of the overall structure of the Constitution? Right, right? fair enough. Um, so, so and and that's why I think Philip Bobbitt's work is so useful here, and would be useful even for a non-lawyer audience to take a look at because. When he goes through the different ways the Supreme Court decides cases, you can see that they they overlap tremendously. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's where along the kind of continuum the court lands that determines its outcome. I agree 100 percent. And and if people want to read about Bobbitt, they might also want to read my co-blogger and friend Mike Dorf, who's written really well about pluralistic decision making. Yeah. And Mike's work yeah. on that one generation later than Bobbitt, uh, I think, is also really, really good and is obvious yeah, to me, descriptively accurate, <laughs> as a bonus. It's just obvious that to me. Yeah. 
Okay, you wrote a law review article called The New Counter-Majoritarian Difficulty in the California Law Review. I think it's a great piece, a fascinating piece. Oh, thanks. We may differ on some conclusions, but I think it's a great piece. Why don't you start by telling the audience what the old counter-majoritarian difficulty was, and then what is the new counter-majoritarian difficulty? So the old counter-majoritarian difficulty, which the phrase comes from uh, Alexander Bickel's Least Dangerous Branch, which was probably one of the most important constitutional law books of the second third of the 20th century. The old counter-majoritarian difficulty was that the court strikes down laws uh, that were passed in many cases in the here and now on the grounds that those laws uh, violate the constitution, but a majority of the people wanted that law, or at least theoretically a majority of the people voted for the people who, who by a majority right. enacted the law. Right. And so the, the difficulty, and, and I've pointed out several times in, in over the years that at the point at time when Alexander Bickel identified the counter-majoritarian difficulty, it was before the reapportionment revolution uh, of the 1960s. And so in most states, actually a minority of the population was electing a majority of the legislature. It was kind of extraordinary. There were states where 13% of the people were electing a majority of the members of the state legislature because rural areas were hugely overrepresented, urban areas were somewhat underrepresented, and suburban areas were often not virtually not represented at all. Wow. Um, and the upshot, though, was that the old counter-majoritarian difficulty was the idea that the courts strike down laws that the people want. So, you know, the people want an abortion law, the Supreme Court strikes it down. The people want affirmative action in their state university, the Supreme Court strikes it down. And that's counter-majoritarian. So that was the old counter-majoritarian difficulty. The new the one. The new counter-majoritarian difficulty that I'm writing about is that for a variety of structural reasons, um, the United States is becoming a country for because of demographic change and the lumpiness of where population growth is and the like, and the fact that you can't amend the equal suffrage in the Senate, which affects not just the Senate, but also confirmation hearings and who's in the judiciary and also the Electoral College. I mean, when you add all these things up, a popular minority of the country uh, has the potential to have a long term control over the organs of the national government, the presidency, the Senate and therefore also the Supreme Court. And this new counter-majoritarian difficulty is hardwired into our Constitution. So Sandy Levinson has been writing, I don't know, for 40 years that our Constitution yeah. is broken. And this is one, this, uh, for many, many, many reasons, but this is one of, one of the big ones. Um, the Articles of Confederation, as I, this is the document that preceded our official Constitution. I think history is a little blurry on this for me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry. <clears throat> Still hoarse from last week. But. Um, I, I think it required unanimity to amend or replace. It was not replaced with unanimity. So we went from one legal regime to the next one without following the procedures in the document of the first legal regime. I think I have that right. If there's a historian out there I'm, I'm, and I'm wrong, please email me or something. I'll apologize. Anyway, assuming I have that correct, um, why, why are we bound by this piece of paper? Like, I mean, the idea of equal suffrage in the Senate seems so insane in the 2023 world that why can't we do what the founding fathers did and <laughs> pretty much ignore the Articles of Confederation and say, you know what, that was a stupid, terrible idea and we're not going to follow it anymore. Why? Well, I think part of the problem is that you can't do what was done in 1787 anymore, which is have, you know, 55 white guys get together <laughs> in a room <laughs> Rewrite the Constitution, right. take it out to the people, and get it approved. Right. Um, that's why I think it's it's hardwired. I mean, there have been attempts to get around the Electoral College in various ways. There have been no attempts to get around uh, equal suffrage in the Senate. Somebody on my podcast, and I, I apologize to this person, I don't know who it was, surprised me when we were talking about this issue by saying, everyone thinks, it may have been... Um, uh, Professor Cohn from Arizona, I forget who it was, but whoever it was, um, said, said we, we, we can amend the Constitution to stop equal represent, representation in the Senate. We just need states to agree to it, <laughs> which, of right. course. Well, right. You know, and there was a there was a really funny note in the Harvard Law Review that I cite in one of the footnotes where somebody says, look, we could solve this problem by just 
if you had the political will, you create like 700 new states right. out of the District of Columbia. Right. Then you amend the Constitution so that you can amend the Senate provision. Then you amend the Senate provision. Right. Um, but you need you would need the political will to do that. And I don't think there's the political will anywhere in the country. Look, we don't even have the political will to give D.C. statehood or to give Puerto Rico statehood, um, each of which would at least go some measure of a way to balancing the bias among small states now that's very, very kind of pro-conservative and pro-Republican versus, yeah. you know, if D.C. was electing senators, they would almost certainly be Democrats. If Puerto Rico was electing senators, I mean, their political parties are a little bit different than ours, um, but they have analogs to the two major parties. So uh, among your many <clears throat> fields of expertise is election law. And my personal opinion is the election of Donald Trump shows our system is not working. The re-election of Donald Trump would break the country forever, I think. You know, that's, not, that's not my question, but that's my personal opinion. As an election law expert, what can we do to make our political system more representative? Because it clearly is not. I mean, the House of Representatives, maybe. But even then, the gerrymandering, you know, North Carolina is 50-50, Republican-Democrat, and Republicans control almost the entire legislature. In Maryland, it's far more um, Democrat than Republican, but not as much as the legislature is Democrat and so on and so forth. What do we do? I mean, I got to tell you, con law professors who I hobnob with, who are not election law experts, like I, I, I know a lot about it, but I'm not an expert. You are. We're kind of depressed. Like We don't know. That, how is this ever going to change? So, you know, if I were thinking about what you could change in election law itself. Yes. There are a couple of things, obviously, that you could do. One is you could increase the likelihood of everybody voting um, because we not only have the skew that gerrymandering creates and the like, but we have a skew that comes from the fact that voting is positively correlated with age and income uh, and and education. So, you know, if you control for those things, we actually don't have much of a racial disparity in the country at all. And indeed, excuse me, when it comes to black women, they vote at a higher rate than their age, income, and education would predict right. in, a, in a race-blind world. So one thing is you could make voting easier. I mean, we have disgracefully low turnouts for lots of things, and we have especially disgracefully low turnouts for a lot of local elections that then determine right. how a lot of these other elections play out. So that's the first thing you could do. Second thing you could do is you could modernize the election system to make it easier for people to vote and to have that system run professionally around the country. A lot of states do a great job at it, um, and that's true for folks from both parties, but a lot of states really don't. You get the elections you pay for in yes. that sense. That's a it's great not quote. not just campaign finance that's a problem here. <laughs> that's a soundbite. You're good at this. <laughs> you know, so that's the second thing that I would do. A third thing that I would do is think about ways that you could change how we actually determine who the winners are to be more proportional in various ways. So, you know, I, the United States adopted first past the post single member districts, for example, for the House of Representatives in 1842. To can, solve you, can you explain what you mean by that for the for the not? Sure. Yeah. So it, it so. Congressional districts, we have 435 members of Congress. They're elected from 435 geographically defined districts. Each state, with the exception of the couple of states that only have one representative, draws lines, literally lines on the ground, if you will, and that determines who's going to get elected. Um, in a lot of cases, you can determine simply by knowing the registration patterns, voting registration patterns, who's going to win the election two years in advance without knowing who the candidates are going to be right. at all. Um, when we adopted that system in 1842, that was not in the original Constitution, um, there was a lot of debate about it, and it was thought that that would create a more representative House of Representatives, if you will, because you wouldn't have, for example, uh, under the old system, a lot of states elected all of the representatives statewide, and so you'd have these huge swings back and forth between the two parties uh, of the time, the Democratic-Republican Party and the Whig Party. Uh, depending on which got a s small majority. So, for example, consider 
like how many how many representatives does Georgia have now? Twelve. I want to say thir- twelve or thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. Okay, so Georgia has thirteen representatives. What you would see under the old system is all thirteen would come from one party in one election, and all thirteen would come from the other party in the next election, and they and they would all be from the Atlanta area. There'd be nobody from any other part. Right. Of Georgia By the way, that's kind of my dream Atlanta. world. But go on. <laughs> Yeah. So now, well, Atlanta broadly defined. Yeah. Still my, um, still my dream so, world. Go ahead. <laughs> better. Yeah. But so what they, what they came up with is this idea you'd have elections from geographic districts. And that would mean some people would be from the rural areas of the state, some from the Western areas of the state, some from the coastal areas, some from the inland and like, because they didn't know about proportional representation systems then. Um, and so that's what, that's what they did to kind of fix things. And it has, you know, I think if you asked a majority of Americans, they would think that's hardwired into the Constitution. It's just a statute. Right. It could be changed tomorrow, uh, if again, if you had the political will to change it. And you might be better off having slightly more proportional representation systems, um, electing, say, four or five members from or three members from a, a larger area um, in which you would then have the likelihood that whichever party is less prevalent there would elect at least some of the people. Uh, one of the things that a lot of countries have, have experienced that use proportional representation systems is it changes the nature of campaigns in a useful way because it's not enough to persuade people. You, just demonizing one opponent doesn't help you. Right. You have to actually give people an affirmative reason to vote for you. Right. And so that might be a change. The problem in the United States in part, though, is, of course, our campaign finance laws would make it very hard to run in these much larger areas because you'd need to raise more money. Um, But at least thinking about those things and experimenting with those on the local level might make a real might make a real difference over time. Um, And then, of course. You know. Just thinking about. um, How to strengthen, I mean, one of the things that has happened over the last 50 years is really the decline of parties as organizations for organizing people. So you now have, you know, Donald Trump is a perfect example of this. Right. He he is just telling the Republican Party to stuff it in every way he can. He's announced, I'm not going to the debates. I'm not going to swear to support the nominee of the party. I'm going to counter program against the party's <laughs> showcases. Um, and he can do that today. And so the question is, is there something that law could do to drive people back into some form of responsible governance rather than the kind of unmediated form of populist democracy that we're now seeing. So I think you, I think you answered this, but, 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 but um, dot the I's and cross the T's for me. I think maybe America's most existential crisis today is the fact that Atlanta and even suburban Atlanta is unbelievably blue and most of the rest of the state is unbelievably red. And that's true for Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, and Texas. It's true um, in Florida. I think less true because of Miami's Cuban population, but still true. Urban areas and rural areas are simply completely different politically. In a way that I, I think is different than any other time in my lifetime. How do we deal with that? It feels unsolvable to me. So, you know, the rural-urban divide has been around for a long, long, long time. And one place where you saw this really powerfully in our history was after the 1920 census revealed for the first time that a majority of Americans no longer lived in rural areas. They lived in what were called places. And some of these are, you know, not particularly large towns, but they had left the farm. And, and it also revealed the highest percentage of foreign-born Americans in our history. And the result of this was Congress did not even reapportion the states in the, the seats in the House of Representatives in 1920 because the combination of the rural-urban tensions, the um, foreign-born tensions, uh, and the huge migrations, in, internal migrations in the country that happened during World War One, revealed that the states that had been in control were going to lose control. Um, and at least we solved that problem through law, actually, which is we now have a permanent apportionment statute, which has been around since 1941 and automatically reallocates the seats. We saw some important litigation about that, that the Supreme Court actually decided, I think, correctly 
uh, when Donald Trump tried to put a question on the questionnaire that was going to drive down uh, right. the reporting the of yeah. uh, people in the country who are not citizens, both non-citizens who are not authorized to be here, but also citizen, non-citizens who are. Um, it, you know, so it's not that this is the first time in our country, but it is the first time in the lifetimes of all of the people now alive right. that we've had this <laughs> level. Um, you know, the, the partisanship in the period between, say, 1875 and 1900 was every bit as bitter as now. Um, but we're not used to this. We're not used to this level of polarization. And we have the problems of modern media on top of that. Uh, and we have, um, you know, we have more things to be polarized about because the government is bigger right. and therefore it matters more who controls the government, right? right? If you have a laissez-faire government, you have people who are totally, <laughs> um, you know, partisan and totally, totally polarized, but they're not fighting over very much. And now we are fighting over a huge amount because the environment, uh, climate change, uh, racial uh, issues, gender issues. Yeah economic inequality at a level that we haven't seen again since the last time we were this polarized. So speaking of history, um, I don't think anyone, I really, I, I don't want to embarrass you. I don't think there's any person in the country who crosses over between litigation and scholarship as well as you do. You do both. You do on the ground litigation where your goal is to do, is to do the most for your client, whatever that means, that's your ethical duty, and you are a scholar of great prominence. So I want to ask you this. Um, I've, I've, been, I've been going around the country for the last year or so giving a talk where I say, in 1801, Congress told the Supreme Court to go home. Go home. You can't meet. Sorry. Goodbye. Of course, they couldn't do that today. But it shows how much Thomas Jefferson and his party hated the Supreme Court. In 1857, we get Dred Scott, which is equally polarizing and possibly leads to a civil war, which may or may not have been inevitable, probably was. Then we have 1900 to 1936, where the court strikes down during the Lochner era, all kinds of laws about economics and wages until FDR goes on the radio, the internet, I mean, the biggest media of the day in 1937 and says, we have to save the constitution from the court. We have to save the country from the court. Then we have the Warren court and all the uprest that did, which led to Richard Nixon's law and order campaign. Um, then we have Roe uh, and Obergefell, which I think led to Donald Trump and so on. Here's my question. The court has always been in the center of controversy. This is no, in fact, when Roosevelt said we have to save the, the country from the court, that's an incredible statement for a president to make to an entire national audience. I, I believe it is a faulty institution. We shouldn't blame the justices because they're human beings who are given un, unreviewable power for life, effectively unreviewable power. And we need to change this institution structurally. Otherwise, we'll never go get anywhere with it. Am I overstating this? Do you agree with it? What parts do you not agree with? But I think it is absolutely time to change the structure of the Supreme Court. So what do you mean by changing the structure of the Supreme Court? I, I would, so I think it is a, I, I'm going to synthesize an entire book, like three sentences. So I've, but I, I believe it is a, well, no democracy in the history of the world, except ours, has ever given government officials effectively unreviewable power for life. None. We're the only one. The reason I think that's so terrible is don't give any government official <laughs> unreviewable power for life. It's just a terrible idea. I think I had the best law school dean in the country for 14 years. Um, we got a brand new sparkling building in 2014. Think about that. The money was raised in 2008. So best dean ever and by coincidence, my one of my closest friends. That's a good deal to have a great dean and your closest friend be dean. I wouldn't give him unreviewable power for life. I'm glad he had to report to a provost and a president. Because it is a check, even though I would, I would trust him with my children's lives. It's still a good thing. There was someone, the Supreme Court is the only institution in the history of democratic countries, I think, that has largely unreviewable power for the life of the people on the Supreme Court. Psychologically, that is too much power for human beings. It just is. That's, that's my take. So, so that's why I'm upset about this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if, if you were designing a Supreme Court for, from scratch, you wouldn't design one today for lifetime appointments. Right. That's for sure true. Um, you know, I'm not sure, you know, other than something like the Canadian notwithstanding clause, yes. um, 
you know, I mean, part of the problem, and this is the point in the piece that you were mentioning earlier that I wrote, is the Supreme Court is it's like the famous etching of Escher etching where the hand is drawing the hand. Yes. You know this? Yes. Yeah. That the Supreme Court yes. creates the democracy that we have through its election law decisions and the like. Yes. And then that those elections create the Supreme Court that we have. And right now we seem to be in this. I, 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 I don't know what the antonym to virtuous cycle is, but it's, you know, malignant cycle, maybe, yes. in which yes. the Supreme Court constrains democracy and a constrained democracy then creates the Supreme Court. And those people are being nominated in utero, practically, right. <laughs> so that they'll be there for 40 years. Yes. I mean, this is why they're against abortion. They want to even push back further when people can be nominated for right. the Supreme right. Court in a way. Um, and that's all bad, right? Um, you know, no, no question about that. Yeah, I, I, that's my career has been devoted to that idea. Um, I guess I have one. And thank you for all your time this morning. I, I have one last question, which I didn't tell you I was going to ask you. And I apologize. Sometimes we go off script and improvising is good. Um, I wrote a piece four months ago called Starting a Difficult Conversation. And the point of the piece was, is it time to really think seriously about disobeying the Supreme Court? And I even said in that piece, if they strike down the student loan program, I think Biden should ignore the, probably ignore the decision and do it anyway. And then just three weeks ago, I would say other than Judge Posner, my biggest mentor of my career is Mark Tushnet, Harvard professor emeritus. And Mark wrote a very public thing on the, on the um, Balkan um, blog saying the same thing, saying it's really time to disobey the Supreme Court. I'm going to predict you're against that. But I'm curious what your views are on that, because that's the only way anything. Roosevelt threatened the court, so they backed down. I believe that's true. I know it's historically debatable, but I believe that's true. Unless we get these people to realize that what they're doing is so outside the mainstream, we're going to have this court for the next 25 years. I take it you disagree with Tushnet and myself. So, if you know, if you're going to disobey the Supreme Court, you better be very sure that you've got the people with you yeah. on this yeah right um you know that there there are and and there are there is disobeying and disobeying right um you know there is reading their decisions much more narrowly than they would have them read right there is passing laws that take things up to the court again and again and again um I will say one of the worst problems we have right now is because the court is six to three and they use the rule of four to decide uh, which cases to actually hear on the merits and then decide, you have a problem that you can't get things onto the Supreme Court's agenda as easily as you could have when it was a five to four court in yeah. various ways. Uh, and one of the things we've sort of talked about in our clinic is there are cases that if we could get the Supreme Court to take them, we would win them. But we can't get the Supreme Court to take them. Right. Um, and, and, and that. So I think when you have a direct order from the Supreme Court in a particular case, that's probably the worst case for disobeying the Supreme Court, especially because once you disobey the Supreme Court, you also have created a world in which lots of people will think they're free to disobey lower courts, which are still deciding cases a lot of times in ways that you want, you know, if you have, like, for example, let's go back to where we started and the Bostock case. So suppose a lower court was to do a trial in Gerald Bostock's case, which in fact settled, but suppose it had gone to trial and the judge ordered the uh, county to take him back on the job and the county just said, no, not going to do it. Um, it. A world in which people feel no one has to obey the orders of courts is probably a worse world than the world we now live in. Um, and so the question of could there come a time when the Supreme Court decides something and you decide, well, I'm just not going to follow that. Yes, there could come that time. Is that time now? And is it like student loans are the place to begin on this when there are ways of fixing that that are consistent with saying when the Supreme Court decides an issue and issues a judgment, people have to obey court judgments. 
The reason I thought the student loan case might be a decent example of this is because I, I, I've read that case 50 times, Pam, and it just frustrates me so much. They were given the power to <laughs> modify student loans in times of emergency. COVID kills over a million Americans. I don't understand the rule of but law possibility of the court saying they can't do that. Right. It, it, it's a bad opinion. No question it's a bad opinion. It is also, though, only not fixable through ordinary channels because our political system has turned into such a train wreck, right? Because uh, one of our clinic cases was a case that involved a, a, a lovely woman named Lily Ledbetter. Sure. And she worked for Goodyear Tire and Rubber for years and years and years. And then she discovered she was being paid less than her male counterparts. Um, we went to the Supreme Court on that case. The Supreme Court decided five to four against us. And the first bill that President Obama signed when he came into office was the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. I remember. Now, that did not, in fact, get Lily Ledbetter her payback, which was, you know, I mean, she should have gotten a T-shirt that said, <laughs> everybody else in America got the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. <laughs> but the political system fixed that. And in a country where the political system was not as completely broken as ours is in many ways today, the Supreme Court decides the Biden against Missouri case. And three months later, President Biden has a signing ceremony in the Rose Garden in which he signs a bill that allows him right. to right. forego but, the but student loans. Sorry to interrupt, but we have no idea from the Supreme Court how specific that bill has to be. Major questions, doctor. Uh, but, but it's easy to, it, again... That's a sign that, you know, the, the question is, if Congress passed a bill that actually talked directly about the president can forgive student loans, I think you could win at the Supreme Court a case when the president forgives student loans. So I lied. I have one more question then. Um, the filibuster is a big part of this then. I mean, I, I'm trying to think, how, how did we get 60 votes in the Senate to overturn the Ledbetter case? Because in today's world, we'd never get that. Well, the, that's because what we have now is it's not just a filibuster now. It's that they've made it easier to filibuster. You don't actually have to stand on the floor right. and, and and squeal. Um, they have, uh, you know, they, there is the party of no. Um, and that, that was not, the Republican Party was not the party of no for most of our history. Right. You know, they, they had different views than the Democratic Party. But both parties actually recognized that part of what the government was supposed to do was make policy on uh, on social stuff. I mean, the, you know, if, if I had to pick the person who's had the worst impact on where we find ourselves today, it would not be Donald Trump. It would be Mitch McConnell. Yes. Um, and that's because Mitch McConnell announced that his agenda for the entire Obama presidency was to destroy Obama. And he and said to that. Make Obama. And he said that. Well, he, he said my job is to see that he doesn't get reelected. Yes. It wasn't to push the policies of my party rather than his party. It was just, you know, my job is to obstruct him at every turn. Right. Uh, and my job is to turn the Supreme Court into yet another, you know, yet another political football. Uh, and my job is to ram through Justice Amy Coney Barrett in, in the last weeks before the election. Uh, and all of that broke things that were already teetering on on the on the edge. I would just say the Supreme Court has been a political football since 1801, since the day. Yeah, but 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 the, even just you know, I mean, think about it this way: there's no way that you would see a president today nominate somebody from either the opposing political party or from the middle of wherever the law finds itself. I mean, there are plenty of mid-range Republicans who could have been nominated for the Supreme Court and none of them was. Why yeah. is that? There are plenty- No of, more suitors. You know, the, the answer is no more suitors. No more suitors, no more Stevens, no more Byron White, if you're talking about the Democratic right. Party. Right. You know, I think, I'm not sure even any more Stephen Breyers. Yeah. If you're talking about the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, you know, no more Harry Blackmans, no more Lewis Powell's, no more William Brennan, no more Earl Warren. You know, 
There is, yeah, you know, yeah. Penn, there, I'm sorry to keep it. We're going to stop in three minutes, I promise. You know, in 2016, I had a fix for this. And what? I had a fix. I had a fix that did not require a constitutional amendment. And to this day, I'm convinced. And every smart non-lawyer I ever met kind of agreed. You mean the tie vote thing you suggested yes. that they just stay with it? You heard of yeah. it. I'm flattered that you heard of it. Yes, a permanent 4-4 yeah. or 6-6, whatever, court with a much more diverse court of appeals. I understand the, the main, I don't want to get too much into it, but the main the main response to me was that makes court of appeals kings because in every 4-4 case, the court of appeals judgment stays, to which my answer is I would trust the country of court of appeals judges over the current Supreme Court by a lot, actually. Um, that would fix most of these problems. It would fix the nomination, confirmation problems. It would, it would fix a lot of things. And the original number was six, if, for those originalists listening to this. Um, yeah, I think I think an evenly divided Supreme Court. And I had a statutory way for getting independent on the court, if, if, so, if we ever had independent again. Um, and I, I, I still think an uh, equally divided Supreme Court, which does not require a constitutional amendment, the Senate can do this on their own, is one of the better answers. Tell me why I'm wrong, and then I'll say goodbye. <laughs> I, I don't think you're necessarily. I don't think you're necessarily wrong about that. I mean, you could also do this. You could also do the same thing by requiring a supermajority vote yes. from the Supreme Court yes. to do a variety of things. Yes, we agree you know, on we agree on both of those things. No, yeah. um, but yeah. that but they might but the Supreme Court might say that's unconstitutional. You can't tell us how to decide, but but they can't say the other things unconstitutional. Congress clearly gets no. to decide who's on the Supreme. You know what, what the number yeah. is. Yeah. Anyway, Pam, thank you so much. I've learned so much from this. Oh, I, no, thank you for having me. Oh, uh, it's great seeing you again, and I really appreciate you coming. Glad to do it.